Well, it is the last weekend in March. This is our third odd and awkward weekend when we cannot we cannot assemble. And um, this is starting to try our patience. And there's just no way around that. Uh, it feels like uh, the line at uh, the DMV or maybe the drive-through at In-N-Out Burger or, uh, you know, driving on the 91 freeway when you're trying to get out of town on a Friday. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that is making us learn to be patient. Or maybe we're not learning it very well. It's one of the reasons I want to take our minds this weekend in our sermon to Romans chapter 8. Because I think this is a critical passage as we think about what it means to be patient in the midst of whatever it is we might face, but particularly now in the midst of this, uh, you know, lockdown, this being sequestered or quarantined, uh, we need patience. We need patience with each other. Uh, we need to be able to endure this with perseverance. And I want to make sure that you and I go to the scriptures to find out what God has to say about that virtue of patience. So let's go to the Word of God. Grab your Bible, your your laptop, your tablet, whatever you've got. Call it up on your phone. Go to Romans chapter 8, a passage I think we all need right now. And I'm going to read for you from the English Standard Version beginning in verse 23. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, it says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. Now, this, of course, is a big perspective, the big perspective of waiting for the end of this world and the inauguration of the next world, which is exactly what we need, no matter what the circumstances. I know we're all waiting to get back to our jobs, our work, have our normal routines, to have kids in school, to have sporting events going on, have soccer, Little League, all the stuff that we deal with in everyday life, we want it to all return. And we're being patient. We're forced to be patient to try and uh, get to that place. But that just simply gets us to think about the discipline in the Christian life that we need to be patient and enduring through everything, because the ultimate uh, weight is for us to get to the place where we are having all of what God has planned for us uh, and all that we anticipate realized in the kingdom. So the context here, take a look at it. The context is all about uh, this creation that has been subjected. Actually, let's get a little context in verse number 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, of course, uh, creation is being personified in this passage. Creation is, you know, does not have feelings. Creation is uh, inanimate. Uh, most of it, at least. The animal life, of course, is animate in a different sense than we are as human beings. But creation itself is messed up. It's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, that's a great line to help us remember what has happened in Genesis 3. God has subjected the world, the creation itself, as I like to say, the fabric of the universe, the fabric of creation has been cursed. It's why we can have a novel coronavirus, COVID-19 attack our bodies and have sicknesses, not just the 
uh, coronavirus, but you know anything, arthritis, uh, you can have uh, cancer, you can have all kinds of issues in your body that are going to uh, tear it apart. The fabric of the universe is messed up, including the weather systems and uh, plate tectonics and everything that we have on the planet that we're so used to that is harmful, that uh, causes pain, that leads to suffering. All those things God has purposefully injected into the universe because he has said, in part, our rebellion internally is going to be manifested in the creation externally, including the external realities of our body. I know we think of our bodies as being ours and internal, but everything that we are is immaterial, and we are encased or embodied or enmeshed in in a material body, and all of that is subject to suffering and pain. As it says here, it was subjected to futility, in that it doesn't live forever, it doesn't always work right, that it's eventually going to uh, corrupt and be uh, broken. And we live in a broken world in broken bodies. But look at the last two words there in verse number 20. That creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and will obtain here the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Back up to verse 19. The revealing of the sons of God is what this is all about. One day God presents his people, his children now, like in some great processional, some kind of parade, this this entrance into the kingdom where finally God has the masterpiece of redemption seen in every way in his, in his children. And that's when creation itself is going to be transformed. And that's the hope. Even back in Genesis 3, it was subjected to futility, creation was, with a sense of it's not always going to be this way, in hope that the creation is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. It's not going to be that way anymore. We're going to be revealed. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All the pain, it's going to ramp up. It's going to get worse. As we know in the Bible, the whole prophetic calendar is about things going from bad to worse. And then it's like, labor pains with a mom who has a child. And then finally, what this has all been about is going to be uh, exposed and revealed. So in verse number 22, the comparison of the creation having this subjection and this groaning is now compared with us. Here's our passage now, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. We know something about renewal inside of our hearts, as imperfect as that may seem and be, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's going to be the changing of everything in the fabric of not only the external creation, but the creation of our bodies itself, the recreation, the glorification of it all. For in this hope we were saved. In other words, this is not about this life. Uh, Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. This is not what Christianity is all about. For we hope for what we do not see, and that's what we're thinking about in the Christian life as being the other world focus, the future focus of the Christian life, then we're to wait for it patiently. So if you're taking notes, and it might be good to jot this down, we need to start with this. We need to realize uh, Christianity is fulfilled in the next life. Christianity is about life then and there, as I like to say. Uh, we need to realize this life is not what it's all about. Uh, this is not it. And and. It's easy for us to think that this life is what it's about when everything is going well. That's why this uh, coronavirus and all that's going on in the news and all the things that we see here that make our lives so uh, uncertain and difficult. And as we start to see more and more people infected with this, even I'm assuming here in our sphere of influence within our web of relationships, we'll start to recognize, man, this can't be what 
life is all about. There's got to be more to this life uh, than this, because this is, uh, you know, entropy, it's deterioration, it's corruption, it's disease, it's sickness, it's it's suffering. All the things in this world, we've got to realize God did not make us for that. As Solomon said, the uh, eternity has been placed and set in our hearts. We know that this world is not what it's all about. And it's good for us as Christians just to state that, to think that the whole point of the Christian life is not to try and make this particular life better between now and the end of our lives on earth. It's getting us ready for the next life. It's qualifying us for the next life. It's giving us access to have fellowship and the gifts of God in the next life. So that is where we need to start. And there is something, and I talk about this from time to time, called an over-realized eschatology, an over-realized eschatology, which is a sense in which the modern prosperity gospel preachers and uh, even those in the first century, a good example of it is in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, they started teaching that all the things that the Bible speaks of, all the blessings, all the goodness, all the great and idealized things in Scripture, they should be realized here and now. And Paul sarcastically says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 8, he says, you guys there in Corinth, which I often say was the Orange County of the ancient world. Things were good there. The economy was good. It was at the crossroads of the uh, of the the economy in in uh, Asia Minor there in in Corinth, which near modern Greece. We have that uh, trip that sometimes we go on and we get to visit this place. Uh, but anyway, it was doing really well in the first century. And he said, "You guys, sarcastically, seem to have everything you want. Uh, you've become rich, and you've become rich." He says, "Without us, uh, you've become kings." And would that you did reign, I mean, if you really were in that place of having the fullness of all the promises of God, so that we might share in the rule with you. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're so strong. You're held in honor, but we're held in disrepute. Uh, in this present hour, we're hungry, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, which they were, right, uh, we bless. When persecuted, we endure, which was in, under, uh, in intimating that these guys didn't. Whenever things went bad for them, they complained and they moaned. Um, when we're slandered, we entreat. We ask God, we pray. When we uh, we have become, he says, and still are like the scum of the world and refuse of all things. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, even just studying that passage, if you were to take time to get into it, you'd recognize how much of it is just dripping with sarcasm because he's trying to get them to see that your thoughts of having everything here and now are wrong because the most godly people they knew, uh, Paul and the, the, the apostles, uh, this band of missionaries, they were having just the opposite experiences they were. They were being reviled. They were hungering. They were thirsting. They were poorly dressed. They didn't have the things that the Corinthians uh, cherished and that they, they loved to think were the gifts of God. Well, they are the gifts of God, but the promise of all the gifts of God are not guaranteed in this life. Safety, uh, security, economic prosperity, uh, good health, all those things are not promised to us. As a matter of fact, the promise of the Bible is they're 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 all going to end. And so it's important for us to recognize that the Christian life is one of hope. Uh, we're saved in hope. We're saved in the future realization of the kingdom and the good things that are coming. And so we're called to recognize not about this life. It's about the next life. 
as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 later says in that same book, verse 19, if we, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. You should feel bad for us if the Christian life is about the here and now. And the only reason someone would say, well, that's a, that's a nonsensical statement, is if you happen to be in a time of prosperity, in a place where, where Christianity is not being persecuted, and where you happen to have relative good health. Well, that's a very small proportion of all the people that have named the name of Christ. Most Christians have not been well-fed. They have not become reigning people. They haven't been in circles of political power. They've been... Um, They've been just like the Apostle Paul says. They've been the, the persecuted. And as he says there in very colorful words, like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. That's a strong way to put it. But I'd have to say we here in America in the 21st century don't know much of what normal Christianity has been like for other generations and even around the world today. The object of so much persecution and uh, in real stark contrast to those who have all the luxuries of this world, uh, most of the church throughout the centuries uh, has, I mean, the real Christians have suffered and, and been persecuted. So all I'm saying is this, when we think about our Christianity and we start to experience more inconveniences and more struggles and more uncertainty and things start to be taken away from us that we're so used to and we've become accustomed to, I want you to remember that everything about the Christian life is not about the here and now. Uh, more I can say on that, but let me give you a few points of application. Four things I want you to do just in, in, in reference to this first part of this message. Okay. Number one, I need you to pray more about the next life. Jesus said we ought to be praying, your kingdom come. This is all under the first point, but I want you to think about this. Four things to apply. Letter A, pray more about the next life. We ought to be praying. I was talking with someone this morning with chronic pain, uh, texting with him, and he uh, is always in 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 agony in his own body. And, you know, a lot of times we text back and forth and we'll use that old uh, Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. And, and again, I couldn't help but say it. I can't wait for the fact uh, that Christ is going to come back. He's going to redeem our bodies. He's going to fix the world. He's going to uh, usher in a place with all the things that God knows that human beings will enjoy and thrive in and thrive on. Those are the kinds of things that we need to anticipate in our prayer lives. So we need to pray. Uh, Maranatha, come quickly. Uh, we want the Lord to come back. We want the kingdom to come. So pray more about the next life. Uh, letter B. I think we need to be reading more about the next life. We need to spend more time in Revelation, particularly chapters 21 and 22. We need to spend more time in the last uh, few chapters of the book of Isaiah. We need to be thinking more often about the things that the Bible says regarding eternal life. And if you glean through the New Testament and you think about the things that Jesus said about this coming kingdom when he comes in power, in glory, with his angels and sits on his glorious throne, these are the kinds of passages that should become near and dear to us. We should memorize these passages. We should think on these passages. We should even take some of the good Christian books that have been written in the last, uh, you know, 20 years on heaven. There's some great ones out there about the eternal state. And we need to study those. If you have a systematic theology, you need to go to the part on eschatology. And I mean, I'm all about learning the whole eschatological theme uh, or, or uh, calendar, but let's at least get to the end of it and look at what we can know of the biblical data of end times. Pray more about the next life. Read more about the next life. Number three, or letter C, I want you to talk more about the next life. You're communicating back and forth, especially during this quarantine period on Zoom or FaceTime or Marco Polo or however you're communicating, give more 
dialogue and more discussion, at least a word or two, about the end of God ushering in a perfect world, a world where we will not be separated, a world where we will not get sick, a world where we're not going to have threats or problems or uncertainty. Uh, Talk more about that. Spend more time giving each other encouragement regarding the eternal state. Pray more about the next life. Read more about the next life. Talk more about the next life. And then I would challenge you, I know these are uncertain times, but I'd, I'd challenge you to give more toward things that make an eternal difference. I'm not saying this just so that you can remember to give to your church. Clearly, we're about eternal things, but I just want you to think about how you can invest your resources in things that matter for eternity. You can go out and buy something, you know, when you can afford those things that that you can just spend on the here and now. You can invest in things that just are going to be uh, providing comfort or convenience for this life. Or you can look at things that matter for eternity, missions trips, missions organizations, uh, dealing with evangelism, evangelistic tools or evangelistic books or training seminars that help us to do apologetics that'll help people uh, get a right perspective on eternal things and on the gospel, uh, giving to your church, obviously, things like that. We need to give. And when we need, when we invest our dollars, our resources in things that are eternally focused, uh, this gets our mind thinking about eternity. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so we need to think in terms of what we can do to give and sacrifice for the next life. Pray more, read more, talk more, give more as it relates to the next life. Great. Verse 23, that's the whole thing. Verses 23 and 24 in Romans chapter 8. That's the perspective as we just read it here. Everything's looking forward. Creation's looking forward. You should be groaning for the next life. We're in hope saved that God is going to bring in this promise of taking all the curse away and setting up a kingdom and changing all the bad here. It's in hope. We don't see it now, but we're looking forward to it. So there's verses 23 through 25, 23, 24, and 25. Let's just now look briefly at verse 23. It says here, to get a little bit closer look at it, to drill down a little further, it says, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. You know, there's so much talk in the Christian life about people being at peace and having joy and being happy, and all those are good things, and they can be there, but they're there in periodic and sporadic moments of the Christian life. Um, What also is going to be periodic and sometimes even protracted and uh, sometimes underlying in the Christian life is this right here, which is frustration. It's groaning. Uh, the groaning and the word groaning in the picture here is one of just, I'm not content where I'm at with the way things are. And that's a good place to be. I put it this way when I was writing this out, to expect frustration. Expect that. Expect frustration that the biblical Christian life is described as something that is going to be, here's the words, middle of verse 23, a inward groaning, because we're waiting for something that's not here. So I think it's so helpful for us to think about that, because if I think I'm not supposed to groan inwardly, if there's not going to be frustration, if I'm not going to have a level of discontentedness with the world and my body and my health and all the things that go on that create instability and suffering in the world, well, then I'm going to be frustrated. If I think it's supposed to be sunny and warm 
and I, you know, take my towel and my beach ball to the, to the beach and it's a storm and it's raining and it's cold, uh, I'm going to be frustrated. But if I know what the weather is going to be like, well, then I prepare for it. So the forecast, as I often say, is not to scare us, but it's to prepare us and to prepare us to have that perspective that the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, life is not the way it's supposed to be. Relationships, sadly, aren't always the way they're supposed to be. My body is not the way it's supposed to be, but I'm not going to get uh, I'm not going to get demoralized. I'm not going to be despondent over that. I'm just going to get ready for some frustration. Expect frustration. Expect, even as that word says, inward. Expect internal frustration. There's something internally that says it's not quite the way it should be. And that's okay. Because that's that's the right perspective to have, is that it's not going to be okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 6, Jesus is giving those beatitudes. And one of the beatitudes is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want you to think about that phrase. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to have a appetite, a desire for something that you don't have. Right After I eat and I'm full and I'm sitting down on the couch, I don't have that hunger and thirst. I'm satisfied. But before that, I don't have what I want. I don't have what I desire. And so there's that those words, hunger and thirst. Well, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is wanting things to be the way God designed them to be. And I trust that even in your own life, you look at the Christian life that you have, the passions for godliness, the fighting of temptation, and you think, man, I wish it were better than it is. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to think that. And then you look beyond and you look at your body, your aches, your pains, the society that we live in. You look at this uh, COVID-19 that we're all struggling with in the middle of all this, seeing it happen, watching the news, watching these stats go up and deaths rising. And you think, man, uh, this isn't right. I want it to be righteous. I want Christ to be on the throne and make everything right. As it says in Isaiah, the crooked straight, the rough places plain. I want Christ to dwell. I want it to be the way it's supposed to be. So that hunger and thirsting for righteousness is something that we live with. And the Bible says, yeah, they're going to be satisfied. But that's future tense. They shall be. It will be. It's going to be. But right now, it's a state of being discontented at one level with the reality of the world as we know it. Um, Paul said, Second Corinthians chapter 5, he said, if we know that this tent, speaking of our bodies, that is our earthly home, it's our earthly home. There's a good qualifier here. It's the home that we have now, which is not our home that we want. If we know that our tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we know we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We got a place where we're heading, our bodies, our world, our environment, it's going to be replaced. For in this tent, here's our word again, we groan. 2 Corinthians 5, 2, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We're thirsting and hungering for righteousness. In this case, for the righteous act of God to give us that eternal dwelling, to give us that resurrected body. If indeed, by putting it on, we will not be found naked. So we're going to have a new home, a new body. It's going to be just the way it ought to be. And never will we be parted from that perfect situation. For while we're in this tent, verse 4 says, this body that we're in, this world that we're in, we groan, there's our word again, being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed so that, that, so that what is mortal, that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So the Spirit of God given to us to remind us that Christianity is about the future and we need to, look at the words, bur we need to be burdened and groaning for that eternal home. 
And you can't help but feel that feeling. And all I'm saying is, hey, Christians, that's a normal feeling. And we need to recognize that because we're in this flesh, because we're in this world, uh, having that sense of frustration is the norm. And you look through scripture, you see it all the time. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's a sense in which homesickness, right, should be something that every Christian feels. If not, you're focused too much on the here and now, and you may be in a situation, and I think most of us are losing a little bit of that situation now, where we feel like the here and now is pretty good. Well, when the here and now is good, and it's good enough for us not to long for home, then we don't have this heart sickness that the Bible talks about, this burdening, this groaning for the next life. Psalm 13, you'll see um, prayers like this all the time. And you look at this in scripture and you think, well, this is how we start to feel when we really get a taste of the brokenness of the world. Here's the prayer. How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long, how long, how long, how long? That's the picture of someone hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for the eternal expression of God's power to make things right in this world, in the environment, in society, in my body. Those are the things we long for. Psalm 119, 81. My my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. Uh, I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. It's all brittle. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. It's hurting. I'm crumbling. Things are going bad. The externals of my life seem to be, you know, hurting and and ebbing away. How long, verse 84, must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug uh, pits for me. They do not live according to your law. Your commandments are sure, but they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. The psalmist says, they've almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. precepts. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. That's the Christian life, the tension of the Christian life to say, I'm going to keep serving God. I'm going to keep loving God. I'm going to keep hoping that God is going to intervene and that one day his salvation will be realized. And we know from a New Testament perspective with great clarity, it's coming when Christ returns we look for the next world and we, we're going to live with frustration. We're just going to be okay with that. Four things. A, B, C, D. Application points. Number one, I just we need to stop asking why. That's just a question we should not be praying. So I would say this. I put it down this way. Don't ever ask why and certainly not why me. We know why. This is what the Bible says. We're going to suffer. We're going to struggle. We're going to have uncertainty in this world. Our bodies are going to get sick. People are going to to be deathly ill. People are going to die. These are the realities of life. As sad as that sounds and as depressing as that sounds, those are the hard facts of reality. And I don't want to say, why me? Uh, If this starts to touch people in our church in practical ways and people start getting sick, we don't say, why, why, why? We know why. Genesis 3 tells us why. And we recognize that it's not about this life, it's about the next. I'm going to be willing to have that frustration and that hunger and thirsting and that discontentedness at one level in our hearts for the next world. So let's not ask why. We know why. Number two, let's replace our complaining with thanksgiving. Replace our our complaining with thanksgiving, but let's use this word even, an anticipatory thanksgiving. Uh, We know we shouldn't complain. Just like the people in the wilderness wanderings. They weren't supposed to complain. What they were supposed to look toward was the promised land. I mean, you're walking through the desert, you're eating the manna. It's not what you want to be eating. 
right? Those are the kinds of things that make us complain, or at least we're tempted to complain. And in the Bible, we know in 1 Corinthians 10 that that judgment of God comes upon the complaining because we need to be thinking more about where we're headed and less about what we're in now. We need to not take this to heart because it's temporary and we need to look forward to where we're going. So we need to replace our complaining. When you're tempted to say, this is terrible, this is awful, I don't like this, we get all that. That's understood by the expectation of scripture. What we need to do is to thank God for where we're going. You might be busy doing things like a student who's about to go to Disneyland on, on the next week. And you think, I don't like my homework. I don't like my chores. I don't like taking out the trash. I get all that. You may not, but look to where we're headed and have that sense that I'm going to replace complaining with the thanksgiving of the promise of where I'm going. Third thing, letter C, I would tell you in this section of fighting the you know, the discontentedness and, and why is this happening to me? I would say this, work at comforting others. Work at comforting others. Everyone's got the same problems. Everyone you know, everyone's Christian life that looks so great, everybody who looks like they got it all together and everything's going great for them, they don't. Everything, like the book of Ecclesiastes says, in this life is like rearranging the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship. It's all vanity. And in the end, most people sense that no matter how new their car is, no matter how big their house is, no matter how big their bank account is. We need to comfort others. We need to make a point of recognizing that even the person with the best looking life, we need to recognize we're there to comfort them because the present isn't going to fulfill them if they're Christians. Well, even if they're not Christians, it's not going to fulfill them. But we need to help get them to think about the next life. So you're struggling. You're you're tempted to think, what's wrong with this world? I'm saying find others to minister to. And let's obviously not just deal with those who seem to have a better life than us. Matter of fact, let's get in the lives of the people that we feel like and can see in obvious ways have a worse life than we have. Now, one of the best things that ever happened to me as a young Christian was being forced uh, by my school and the program I was studying in, in Chicago to go and minister in a, um, a nursing home every Sunday afternoon. And that was so good for me to you know, finally be exposed to a bunch of people I didn't know that were sick and dying and had cancer and all kinds of problems. And to say, I'm here going to deal with their issues and I'm going to take whatever problems I might have as a 18, 19 year old, and I'm going to set those aside and I'm going to focus on the needs of other people. And I'm just saying work to comfort other people. Everyone's got problems that relate to the the, the inconsequential uh, fulfillment or the, the lack of fulfillment in this life. And let's look to eternity and help them look to eternity by comforting them. And then fourthly, I would say, because you can't always be actively engaging in the comfort of other people, but you can pray more for those who are severely hurting. Uh, There's a lot of good websites out there. There's a lot of uh, books out there that I often recommend about the persecuted church. There's a lot of people on our prayer list every single week that we get in our email box here at church. You can sign up to be a part of our prayer team and see those who are really hurting. And I'm saying just spend more time in prayer, interceding for those where the life that is, you know, promised to be less than we want it to be in their lives is reached an acute level. They're in a lot of pain. They're struggling. They're, they have issues and, and pray for them. May your prayer list be filled with people that have a whole lot 
worse time in the present era than you do. That's a good way for us just to keep ourselves from complaining and letting that internal frustration reach a place of despair. That's the point. I don't want us to despair. I want us to know that frustration is in order an internal frustration that groaning is the right thing because we're waiting for the next life. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. But I don't want it to, to turn to bitterness and despair and throwing up our hands and not having the hope that this passage is talking about. So expect that internal frustration. Don't ask why, right? We know why in Scripture. Replace the complaining with an anticipatory thanksgiving. Let her see. we got to comfort others. Everyone's got, a, got the same basic problem. Certainly Christians, we all know that we're headed to a better place and that this life is not what it's about. And then fourthly, make sure your prayer list is filled with people that have some of the most difficult times in the present life. All right, let's look now at verses 24 and 25. Here's the basic focus, and we already built this and set the stage for this. But look at verse 24. For in in, in this hope that things are going to be changed, our bodies are going to be redeemed, creation's going to be freed from the bondage that it's in. For in this hope we were saved. The whole point of the Christian life is the next life. And so we were saved with that promise and that hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. I mean, you wouldn't use the word hope, hoping for something that you've already got. For who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25. For if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If we know that our hope is on a certainty that's coming, then we can right now say, I can be patient. I can wait for it. A lot of internal frustration at this point, but by focusing on our coming relief, we can acquire this kind of fortitude, this kind of internal courage and strength and this patience that we need. So I put it this way, letter C, or number three rather, uh, we need to acquire strength by looking forward. We want to strongly endure, we want to persevere, we want to be patient, then we've got to focus on on the forward momentum of where the Christian life is going, where the church is going. The church is triumphant, not presently, it's triumphant there. When all the vindication and all the glory of God is settled on his church, when we enter into the kingdom and he says, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Turn to this cross-reference with me. I want to show you the picture when it hits your life in a personal way. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Basically what I'm saying is we need to get such a clear focus on the finish line, where we're headed as Christians. Um, Here we go. Let me read this for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, if you know Hebrews chapter 11, we got all these people that have done all these things by faith. They've trusted in God and they've realized the promises, right? They haven't realized them in their life, but now they've realized them in the presence of God and they're awaiting the revealing of the sons of God and the coming of Christ uh, and the setting up of the kingdom. But we're surrounded by people that had this faith that we need to have. And it says, so let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that which clings so closely, we've all got a lot of sin, including doubt and frustration that leads to despair so often, whatever that sin might be, and let us run with endurance. If you've heard me teach on the word endurance before, you know I like to talk about the Greek word hupomene. Hupomene is a compound word. Hupo means under, mene, or meno means to stay in place or to stay. And, and hupo, under, stay in place under. The picture in scripture uh, is is one in that word that makes me think of a uh, a donkey or a burrow down in Tijuana. When I was a kid, I'd go down there. You'd buy the the blankets and the the hooded thing, whatever you call it. And this donkey would be there with all these packs on his back. And and you know, you'd think, wow, the swaying spine of that burrow. It just it's amazing that they bear up under all the weight. Well, that's the picture of this word. And it says we need to run our race 
bearing up as though we have a huge backpack on our back, but we're going to run. We're going to run. Look at this now, the race that is set before us. And the emphasis here is certainly on us compared to whatever the the problem was for Gideon or Barak or David or Abraham in the last chapter. We got our own struggle, whatever that might be. And for us right now, it's not having all the stuff we're used to and the comforts and conveniences of 21st century South Orange County Christianity. And we've got to run our race. And really, it's small by comparison. It's not that steep by comparison, but it's painful. It's hard. It's difficult. Whatever the difficulty is, that's our course. And we got to run it with endurance, holding up under the pressure, whatever the pressure might be. Looking, verse 2, to Jesus. That's where we put our focus. There's no place to put my eyeballs to see Jesus. This is an internal mental focus. I'm focusing on the historic information found in the Gospels about Jesus. Jesus, who's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, not only showed us an example that we should follow, the founder of our faith, but he is the perfecter of it. He gets it done. He's at work in us. He said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, what about him? The picture is, in the past, I'm supposed to look at how he did this. Middle of verse 2. Who, for the joy that was set before him, right? he endured, there's our word again, hupomene, he endured the cross. Well, wait a minute, what's the joy set before him? See, the cross was here in the foreground, the joy was on, on the horizon. That's the picture here. And so he got through this pain, the weighty pain of the cross, because he looked beyond the cross to the crown, to the pleasing of the Father, to having the glory restored to him, as it says in John 17, when he returns into the presence of the Father that he had before the world began. He looked to the prize where God would give Christ the name that's above every name and exalt him. And, and all the things that we read about in terms of the exaltation of Christ, he looked beyond the cross and endured it. Hupomenade the cross, despising the shame. How bad was it to be crucified? Terrible, awful. Talk about it all the time. And, and this word, I often I can't read this passage without even this compound word, kata phreneo. Kata is the Greek preposition down, and phreneo is to think. And he's thought down on the shame of the cross. Yeah, the cross was bad, but he thought less of it. He let the horizon be the big thing in his in his vision, so to speak. And he made this shameful, horrible Roman execution be the small thing. He looked down on it. He thought less of it. He made it small in his thinking compared to the horizon. So he cataphreneoed, he despised the shame, and now is, look, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That was the picture. And for a third time now in verse 3, consider him who hupomenade, who bore up, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you, think about what Christ did, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Hupomene, 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 such a great word, bear up under the trial, run your race with endurance. Christ was able to look beyond the cross to the crown, to the right hand of the Father, the exaltation on the other side of the cross, to see the shame and the, the, the pain and the frustration and all that in the garden of wanting to be released from it all, let this cup pass from me, and he endured it. He was patient, and he was able to look beyond it. And so that's the picture. We acquire strength in the midst of our struggle, and you may be really short on patience with your kids or your spouse or whatever it might be right now, whatever it is that you're deprived from having, and you say, I'm going to endure it. I'll get strength in the current struggle by looking beyond the current struggle to the horizon of what God is going to provide us. What a great picture, so that you may not grow weary and, and be faint-hearted. 
talk to a lot of people right now. How you doing? A lot of them are like, I'm weary. I'm faint-hearted. They don't use those words, but they communicate that idea. And, and what I want to do is point you all, as we study the Bible today, in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, to say, we are waiting with patience for the thing that God is going to provide in the next life. So this is the, this is the calling. We have, a as 1 Peter chapter 1 says, a living hope. The hope is there. It's secured for us. It's kept in heaven. Verse 5, guarded, it says, and it's it's going to be revealed in the last time. And we rejoice in this now, even though if now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. we got a trial going on right now. We've been grieved by this trial. To whatever extent that it's touched your life, this is a struggle. But the Bible says you can rejoice in it because we know where we're going, an inheritance that's guarded and protected. The passage there is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Matter of fact, I'll give you verse 13 as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Here's a great memory verse. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to that again. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope, your focus, your, your, your anticipation on the grace, the good, the favor, the blessing that's going to come, going to be brought to you, to us, at the revelation when Christ is revealed of Jesus Christ. Christ is coming back. Every eye will see him. He'll set up his kingdom and we will then be vindicated and blessed. And that focus of the favor that we're going to receive then, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that greatness, right, is not even worth, you can't even compare the suffering of this present life to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. That's got to be our focus. So set your hope strongly on that. Focus that on Make that focus your the thing you're going to set your sights on. And as you do, you'll get great strength in the midst of the, of the trial. So let me give you four things on this. Four things to acquire strength, ways to do it, application here, if you will. Number one, I would ask you to pray for the Spirit of God. If He dwells in you, a lot of passages we've talked about, the Spirit is involved. He's the one who's the hope of this, um, the guarantee of this hope of eternal life. He is said to live within you. That's a picture, a spatial picture of his relationship with you. He's ready to give you what is needed to get through whatever trial there is. And I put it this way, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you patience, to give you endurance. Uh, By the way, if you think about that, Galatians chapter 6, it talks about, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5, it talks about in verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. What's the next one? Love, joy, peace, patience. God wants to give us this patience, this ability to hang in there. The Greek word for patience, macrothumia, another good compound word. Macro means long, long. And, and thumia, that means like heat, as in anger. It takes a long time to get angry. It takes a long time to get frustrated in a, in a way that, you know, we're doing something sinful or wrong. So we can deal with the difficulty, the mild frustration of knowing it's not the way it's supposed to be, uh, because God's Spirit is able to grant that. So I want to have Hupamene, I want to have macrothermia, I want to have endurance, and I want to have patience, and that comes from God's Spirit. So I would just say, and it's just a great prayer in my life to think about the things that I know are on the list in Galatians 5 of the, of the fruit of the Spirit. I pray for those things. God, give me that patience by your Spirit. Let your Spirit produce that fruit in my life. So that being the first thing. Pray for the Spirit to give you patience. Number two, learn more of Christ's deprivation and his sacrifice. 
Learn more of Christ's deprivation and sacrifice. I need you to look at the Gospels and to think about, as you read the Gospels, what Jesus went through. Think about him, John uh, 4, at the, at the well. He's tired and he's thirsty and he wants a drink and instead he shares the Gospel. I'm thinking, who is this? This is, this is the second person of the Godhead. I mean, he should never be thirsty. He had never been thirsty, right, before his incarnation. He had everything. If you think of all the advantages that Christ had, and now he's here where he can't even get enough water to drink. He can't even be hydrated the way he wants to be on a journey through Samaria. I mean, the deprivation of Christ, let alone the most dramatic ones where you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, crying out to the Father to have this cup pass from him. Study the gospel, study Christ, think about Christ's deprivation, because that's what our passage there in Hebrews says, just to, to set your sights, to set your focus, set your eyes on Christ. And the way to do that specifically is to study the gospels, learn more about Christ's deprivation and his sacrifice. Uh, number three, I just say read your Bible more. And I throw that in because I was reading Romans chapter 15 this week that says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. And it speaks about the fact in that passage earlier in the text that the things in the former days in the Bible were given to us and written down so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. So God wants to give us hope. The Spirit gives us hope. I already dealt with that in the first sub point here, letter A. But in letter C here, I want to tell you that the means by which in this passage, Romans chapter 15, he started with was he wrote this book called the Bible and the specific things in the Bible, whether it's the wilderness wanderings or the judges that we're reading now in the, in the daily Bible reading, all of those things are written to give us endurance, there's our word, and encouragement that allow us to have that kind of abounding in hope, which is the whole point of Romans chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. So, Pray for the Spirit to give you patience. Letter B, learn more of Christ's deprivation as you read the Gospels. And, and letter C, uh, I just want you to read your Bible more because the Bible is the source and the means by which God will grant us endurance and hope. And then letter D, I would just say this, which is the simple application of what we just uh, you know, wrote down for this third point, and that is you've got to focus on trying to derive joy from a clearer picture of the New Jerusalem. Get joy. Say, God, not only do I want to, as I said, as the application of the first point, to study the end times, to study where we're headed, but I want us to focus on the fact that that I want to derive joy from that. God, give me an excitement for where I'm heading. It's like a kid if I say I'm going to go to Disneyland and he's so young and so ignorant that he has no idea why that would be fun. Well, get the brochures out. And I want you to learn about what you're going to experience there. And, you know, a 10-year-old is going to enjoy this. So just learn about it. But then I want to go further in this application, letter D. And I want to say, I want to get you to start to think about the fulfillment of that. Think about the joy that the new Jerusalem will give us. Think about the relationships that will be fixed. Think about the peace and security that we'll have, being in the presence of God. Think about the kinds of, of fulfillment and significance in the work that God will give us. It says his, his servants will serve him. I mean, there's so many passages in the scripture that should kind of ignite our joy over where God is taking us. So derive joy in uh, clearer thoughts of the new Jerusalem. Everyone's taking pictures on their cameras now, their phones rather. Their phones are their camera. And one thing you miss, unless you got a lot of fancy software or the latest phone, I suppose, is uh, being able to, at will, adjust the depth perception of the lens, right? You photographers know, you know, what you can mess with 
in terms of the depth of field to be able to figure out what you're going to focus on. You can do that electronically, I suppose, with a lot of the fancy cameras we have on our phones now, but that's a lot harder to do. It's a lot easier when you just twist that dial. And if I want to focus on something in the in the foreground, that's easy. If I want to focus on something in the distance, I can make the thing in the front blurry. That's the picture right here. I'm trying to get the dial right now on your life to spin that lens a little bit and say, right now, the pain is here, the fire is here, the deprivation is here, the aggravation is here, the deprivation is here, but I want to take the lens of that of that camera and I want to turn it to where what happens is this gets blurrier in the thing way out there in the in the distance that was really blurry before now gets into sharp focus that's the picture adjust your perspective adjust what you're looking at as I've said in the sermon outline know that Christianity is fulfilled in the next life the frustration for now is going to be there you're going to have something in the foreground it's going to be messy but look forward to where we're headed get your focus there. So hopefully these things will be helpful for you as we study God's word. I want you to be focused on eternity. I want you to have the hope of Romans chapter 8 verses 23 through 25. Creation is groaning. We're groaning. We're looking forward to eternity. Let me pray for you. God, help us to get through this as the way uh, Christians who have hope set on eternity should and would. And I pray to be stronger because we're studying your word together this weekend in Jesus' name. Amen.